Welcome to the Human and Technology Podcast. This podcast is for anyone who develops, distributes or uses technology. For all those who always have the feeling that technology overwhelms or dominates them. For everyone who wants to know how to deal with technology in everyday life. For anyone who wants to understand what technology does to us and how we can get our lives back. This podcast is for those who want to make technology sexy. All the product developers, designers, UX, UI professionals, product managers, CTOs and CEOs. And it is for you. My name is Dr. Peter Reska. My friends call me Dr. Peter. I am your host and I am happy that you are here. This is um, the first episode of another double episode uh, where I have um, an overall of 60 minutes divided into two parts. So episode one of uh, we need to know everything about humans to design technology and not vice versa. So um, this is uh, super interesting for me and I could have talked far more than 60 minutes about this but... Uh, Well, listen to it, uh, give me feedback, let me know your opinion, and uh, hope you have fun. We need to know everything about humans to design technology, and not vice versa. This is uh, one of the claims, one of the mantras that I'm using to describe my consultancy business as well as my speaking business and this is my deepest belief if we talk about uh, human technology human machine interaction human the relationship between humans and products and technological artifacts we very often look at the technology and criticize this and find ways to improve it and find ways on uh, alternative different technologies. So this is one side. And then we very often look at the core interactions. And okay, this is what's happening between the human on one side and the technology on the other side, the exchange of information, the processes. So everything is, uh, what happens between these? So those are the two core aspects. And There is a third part in this uh, human-technology interaction, and this is the human. And uh, this is the reason why I uh, have this podcast, and it will definitely not be the, the last episode uh, that I make um, with a focus on humans, on what humans are, how humans are, why we are uh, the way we are. And uh, sometimes people criticize me that uh, I'm looking back in history, sometimes in, in, in very long time frames. But my belief is, uh, if you know the history, if you have a look at uh, the uh, where we come from, and, and uh, if you draw a line from, from the, the far past to the present, then it allows you to look into the future and 
I mean, it's not uh, that you just extrapolate uh, from the past to the present and then into the future, not even in a linear way or uh, any other way. But if you do this, if you look back, um, you will find the constants, things that are that seem to be inherent in the humans, the things that do not change over time. And if a certain way of thinking, a certain way of acting um, was there 10,000 years ago and it's still present, we can really believe that um, this will be there for another 100, 150, 200 years at least for the time frame we think in the moment uh, about technology. So there are things that are very constant in human history and if you identify them you have the constants for the future and of course um, there are very short-term things uh, which makes predictions very hard and um, the, the the reality is not not one or the other but you have both of them you have these constants over thousands of years and they will remain and you have uh, Things that change uh, pretty quickly, and, and and we will discuss uh, in in, uh, in this podcast episode where this comes from and and how to handle this. So we can derive things for today and for tomorrow from history. And the master in this discipline is a guy, a historian from Israel, called Yuval Noah Harari. And I, I really like him. I like uh, his personality. I like the way he is. But first of all, I love his books. I love his way of thinking. I love the thoughts uh, he is uh, putting out in a sometimes very provoking way. At the end, I see him as one of the brightest thinkers of our time. And... Uh, for me, he is not only a historian, he has this uh, history-focused view, but uh, he's more like a philosopher and, and a futurist for me. And um, this is why I, I really like him and, and I really like his ideas. And um, I pick them up uh, every now and then and uh, reflect my thinking, my acting, and reflect the design of technology towards his ideas. He has uh, published uh, three books. Um, he has published some more, but uh, three core books, uh, which um, yeah, which is what he has given to, to humankind. The first one is A Brief History of Humankind. Um, that was the first one, I think, 2013. Then he wrote Homo Deus, which is basically the follow-up of A Brief History of Mankind. And then um, the latest uh, big publication is 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. All three books are definitely worth a read. The aim of this podcast episode is to talk about A Brief History of Humankind and um, reflect on what is happening, how this is related to the design of technology, to the design of human-machine interfaces of HMIs. 
what Harari's thinking tells us about the relationship between humans and technology today and tomorrow, and uh, what reminders Harari gives us for our near future. If we look at humans today, basically meaning at all of us, at you and me and everyone listening to this podcast, we see living beings that are perfectly adapted to life in the savannas of Africa. Evolution had four billion years to adapt to, to this life. So about four billion years ago, something happened on, on, on this planet. We do not know what exactly happened, uh, but something happened that created the first versions of life. The first, uh, yeah, there was a one cell, very simple life. And that was the beginning. And then uh, we had three billion years of one cell life. And uh, then something crazy happened that these um, one cell, single cells living of the moon, reproducing themselves by themselves, they united, they, they built groups to defend themselves against other cells. And that was the beginning of multi-cell life about one billion years ago. And the, the fascinating idea is uh, that all of us and every life on earth, whether it's animals or plants, Everything goes back to this one cell that has uh, become to life, that, that was created four billion years ago. So, genetically, we humans have hardly changed in the last 50,000 years. So, the four billion years before, or particularly the one billion years after building multicell lives and today, There are a lot of things happen, but 50,000 years is basically nothing compared to, to uh, the billions or millions of years. And um, just to show you the, the, uh, the time frames that we have here. But uh, genetically seen, we are still hunters and collectors. We are nomads from a genetical point of view. Factors. Our environment today is completely different from what it was 50,000 years ago. And as, that, as I said, uh, evolution had 4 billion years of times to prepare us for the world we had 50,000 years ago. And from this difference between our genetic disposition and the environment that we have created for ourselves, This is the reason why we have problems with technology. Or as uh, the German uh, or Austrian psychoanalysis Sigmund Freud uh, analyzed about 100 years ago, the alienation with the prosthesis that we have. So Freud sees technology as, as prosthesis and um, they're not really adhered to us and um, they make us quite some problems. And, by the way, this difference between our genetic disposition and the environment we have with all the technology in it, that, I'll tell you a secret, 
that pays my bills. Basically, that shows us two things. Our brains, or the human brain as we see it today, is the most complex structure that we know in the entire universe. About 100 billion neurons are interconnected and they fire constantly. So imagine you have between 10 and 15 times the entire population of the world and everybody is basically able to communicate with everyone else and so they're sending messages and mails and they're making phone calls on a constant basis. This is our brain. This is how our brain functions. And um, surprisingly, um, we get, get very nice results out of this um, firing structure. Our brains are optimized for a life uh, like we had it 50,000 years ago. But today, we are solving today's problems with it. So we can drive 250 kilometers per hour on a, on a German autobahn and at the same time fiddle around with the navigation system. We solve mathematical equations of high complexity. We orient ourselves in complex urban environments. We develop mobile phone apps, PC programs, robots, and we even develop artificial intelligence. This shows the tremendous flexibility of our brains. On the other hand, there are often surprising bottlenecks. When, for example, handling complex and fast processes, when estimating exponential changes, when interacting with a large number of other people, when storing and retrieving information, we surprisingly often fail with that. One example, I am at a conference and I meet someone that has a name tag and we, we, we talk and uh, we have a little small talk, a coffee together and at the end of the coffee this person turns around and goes away. Sometimes we stand there and say, what was the name of that guy? I just had 10 minutes small talk and I saw his name on, on, on the name tag all the time. Oh, but I forgot. I just forgot it. Another thing is our brains are not made for monotony. Our brains just don't like it at all. For example, the monitoring of machines or screens. When we imagine that we have um, higher levels of autonomous driving or any other kind of automation, then we will have people sitting there and watching a machine working. And all we as humans do is controlling that. And uh, a few months ago, uh, one of my colleagues said, uh, human, the human operating system, the human brain, is not made to sit in a car and watch the traffic around us, which is absolutely true. 
our thoughts start wandering around, our brains need to be fed, uh, we get distracted, uh, we think about, hey, what will I have for dinner tonight, instead of watching a machine working in front of us. And this phenomenon is called loss of vigilance in scientific terms. The mistakes human brains make, all these surprising bottlenecks we have, are not negative per se. It's more the contrary. They often lead to innovations, or at least changes, and it makes us questioning the status quo which allows improvements, which allows moving forward, which allows innovation. And this uh, is leading to the fact that we do not have to be afraid of being replaced by artificial intelligence sooner or later in the future. And, I mean... Quick footnote, um, those of you who follow me since, uh, since a longer time know that I don't like the term artificial intelligence because I think either it's artificial or it's intelligent. So intelligence for me is always connected to life, to being natural. And everything artificial can, by nature, not be intelligent. So I prefer terms like machine learning or self-learning software, which or deep learning, which much better meet uh, the phenomenon. But since everyone else uses the term artificial intelligence, I use it as well, because I'm, I'm not the person changing the entire industry and entire science uh, just for one expression. But artificial intelligence, um, we do not need to be afraid of being replaced by, by artificial intelligence. It's not because we are faster, more perfect, or more intelligent than machines. It is exactly the opposite. We are imprecise, slow, and flawed. And this is exactly why we can change the world. Artificial intelligence will never be really creative. Artificial intelligence can fake creativity, but not be really creative. A few days ago, I heard on the radio a song from the band Nirvana. Um, those of you not knowing it, Nirvana was a grunge rock band uh, of the early uh, 90s. And their leader, lead singer Kurt Cobain committed suicide at the age of 27, which was in the yeah, mid-90s. Mid, mid and since then, there have been no new Nirvana songs. So there is a corpus of, let's say, 25, 30 songs, all in all. And what this artificial intelligence did was listening to all these songs, analyzing them, and then writing a new Nirvana song. And this shows exactly what creativity means in artificial intelligence. This means analyzing existing music, extracting certain characters, certain yeah, cer cer certain points out of it, 
and then rearranging that in a certain way and, and putting that out. And the, the, the result was surprisingly good. I mean, um, I heard this song and says, yes, this is Nirvana, definitely. But um, after all, yeah, I, I really like the original material far, far better. And um, Nirvana, um, sorry, the artificial intelligence would have never been able to create a Nirvana song without knowing all the other Nirvana songs. Only the humans around Kurt Cobain were able to be creative and create these songs and these, uh, the sound and, and the style that they had. Another point, artificial intelligence will never be empathic, really empathic. It can imitate empathy, but it will never be really empathic. So, Uh, if I had a bad day, uh, I can call some some uh, hotline and there is an artificial intelligence and I tell, hey, I crashed my car this morning, then my boss fired me and when I came home, my girlfriend left me and now I'm all alone and have no money and no job and no car. Then this artificial intelligence will say, hey, poor Peter, and yeah, I can't feel with you and I know this is very bad and it will be better one day. I mean... This is faking empathy. This is not real empathy. And the third point is artificial intelligence will never have intuitiveness. So this is a little um, excursion towards artificial intelligence and why uh, we do not need to fear to be replaced by artificial intelligence. Uh, because uh, we have creativity we have empathy, and we are intuitive. Let's go back a long way into history. 2.5 million years ago, the first prehistoric humans developed from an upright ape-like creature. That was when today's uh, chimpanzees, gorillas, apes, and the humans separated from a common being um, that there is uh, their prehistoric ancestor. Homo sapiens appeared on the scene about 150,000 years ago. And until then, and even at that time, humans were just one kind of many, just a small, weak mammal and There was nothing to suggest that this breed, that the humans, that this rather, rather weak being, which is not really fast, not particularly well armed with uh, endogenous weapons like teeth, claws, spikes, or some poison, that this being would rule the world one day. And... As with most other beings, there were different species of human. So we had different kinds of human, different types of, of people all over the world. And the probably best known example of this is the Neanderthal man. Um, that was another breed of humans living sometimes parallel with the Homo sapiens. And there were others at that time, 150,000 years ago. 
Um, sometimes very small. Um, there was one breed called the human Java on the Java Island. Sometimes, um, yeah, pretty big and strong uh, um, kind of humans um, like the Neanderthals. It's just the same, like, for example, with dogs, like you have these tiny dogs that uh, celebrities carry around. And uh, then you have maybe a German Shepherd, which is a pretty big and, and, and strong dog. And that was pretty much the same for, for, for humans many, many years ago. And over the years, uh, in a comparably small time frame, Homo sapiens was displacing the other species of humans. When it began to spread around the world, when it began to uh, conquer the rest of the world, starting in Northeast Africa, basically today's southern Egypt or northern Sudan, um, that was around 70,000 years ago, when, when uh, those humans started their, their journey around the world, that was the beginning of the end of other human species. And there are two hypotheses explaining that one and the more known and longer established thesis is the displacement hypothesis. This means that um, the, for the reasons we're going to talk about in the next minutes, the Homo sapiens just pressed other human species out of the world, out of life. And the second hypothesis is the crossing hypothesis that is comparably new. Uh, it was invented in uh, 2010, so a bit more than 10 years ago. Then uh, when, when we decoded uh, the Neanderthal genome and found that parts of today's Homo sapiens contain parts of the Neanderthal genome. So there must have been um, crossings, there must have been common children between Neanderthal men or women on one side and Homo sapiens men and women on the other side. For me... The reality is probably somewhere in the middle, as it usually is. It was a displacement, but there are also crossings happened between these different species of humans. Anyway, in the end, only Homo sapiens was left. And that is us. That is you, that is me, and that is all the humans living on this globe. And that has to do with what Harari calls the cognitive revolution. We will get into detail this, but into more detail on this. But um, the cognitive revolution, the explosion of our mental abilities, led to a cultural evolution. So the cognitive revolution led to a cultural evolution, which is much faster than the genetic evolution, meaning the development of humans was decoupled from the comparably slow, slow genetic evolution, and it was a cultural evolution happening based on the cognitive revolution. So at a certain point in time, the Homo sapiens 
was superior to other living beings for precisely that reason, for the decoupling of cultural evolution and genetic evolution. Until about 70,000 years ago, the life of the human species of humans had always looked pretty much the same for hundreds of thousands of years. The tools had hardly changed, the group sizes remained more or less constant, and the complexity of the communication probably did not really change. And all that suddenly changed 70,000 years ago. It happened relatively quickly. Relatively quickly by means compared to other genetical changes that we have, the evolution. Homo sapiens learned a new language, a new level of communication. How this happened is more or less unclear. It was probably no more than a coincidence, an evolutionary accident, a genetic defect. In any case, the new language made complex communication possible. Instead of just communication on the level of attention, the tiger is coming, as monkeys or many other species, many other animals can do it, even bees or insect-like bees can communicate on that level. For Homo sapiens, suddenly communication on the level, let's meet at the next full moon down at the bend of the river and then we're going to hunt the mammoth together. That became possible. And that was the big differentiator. That kicked off the development of us as humans, uh, as Homo sapiens, um, 70,000 years ago. With that more complex communication, gossip became possible. And it may seem astonishing that gossip contributed to human development. But by sharing information about other group members, trust could be built or trust could be destroyed. And with that, significantly larger groups became possible. Also, things that did not exist in the physical world could suddenly be part of the conversation. Until today, people can find each other's through a common idea, even if they don't know each other's. And one of these common ideas, as an example, is trade. So trade became possible uh, because people had a common idea, a common abstract idea about what trade means. Exchanging goods, or exchanging goods against money. We're going to come back to money later. Um, but that suddenly became possible. And the same goes for more complex hunting parties. I said, okay, um, some people were just uh, um, hunting the animal, others were killing it, and those killing it were sharing the meat with the others. Uh, then and, and so that was possible because communication was possible and trust was possible and a common idea was built on how hunting uh, should be done and how social structures uh, should function. 
and with only a few generations, humans became able to completely change their way of life. And for this, again, they did not rely on classical genetic evolution, but they could use the cognitive evolution. So we have reached the end of uh, the first part of the episode on We Need to Know Everything About Humans to Design Technology. Next week, second part. Tune in. That's it for today. Thank you for spending time with me. I hope you were able to take something with you and do something for yourself that will be forever. For an ongoing exchange, you will find me on LinkedIn and on my websites, peter-rusker.com and beyond-hmi.de. Write me an email on the podcast at beyond-hmi.de. Tune in next time. Take care and stay healthy.